Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we are going to talk about trade in blood, which, if you've ever looked at the US trade data, is weirdly big. We knew about trade in autos, trade in smartphones, soybeans, but blood? Really? When it comes to blood, it turns out that America is the first step in what is a massive global supply chain. We're going to talk to my colleague Alice Fullwood, who recently wrote a piece about this. She's the Wall Street correspondent for The Economist. Now, obviously, with lots of health and safety regulations, there really isn't free trade in blood. It's a weird market. Often we think about different rules and regulations as being barriers to trade. But in this case, it could be the rules and regulations that are actually propping up that trade. To explain a bit more, in America, you can get paid to donate blood. That creates a huge supply of plasma, which is one of the components of blood. In Europe, in most places, you're not allowed to pay donors for blood, but still they demand the blood. The imbalance between supply and demand is the thing that creates all this trade. Some rules and regulations do block trade. In France, for example, it's actually illegal to use blood from somewhere with paid donors. As with all things we talk about on Trade Talks, it's complicated. Here's Alice. Alice, welcome. Thanks, Yumea. At the risk of making Chad faint, what is blood? What are the components here in this market? Sure. So blood is made up of three different components. You have the red blood cells. That's what people usually think of when they think about blood and blood transfusions. Then you have blood plasma. This is by far the biggest category of sort of cross-border blood trade. It's the sort of yellowish straw-coloured liquid that makes up most of of your blood by volume. It's full of antibodies and other sort of useful therapeutic components. And then you also have clotting factors, which are sort of less than 5% of your blood, and they help your blood to clot when you are wounded. So can you talk about the relative demand for these different kinds of blood components? So while most people think of blood transfusions as the main use for blood, actually transfusion demand is falling. I spoke to a sort of person who's managed blood stocks in London's and one of London's South Hospitals for 20 years. He's saying that in the UK they used to use 2 million units of red blood cells a year in sort of the the 90s. Now they only use 1.4 million and that's because modern medicine is much more efficient. You used to need to use sort of three units of red blood cells for a hip operation. Now you often don't need any because it can be done via keyhole surgery. So while demand for red blood cells is falling, at the same time you've seen this sort of sharp rise in demand for plasma products. When we talk about plasma products, though, it is worth emphasising just how broad that category is. You can go and donate the plasma, and then that plasma gets used to make vaccines or even the biologic drugs that we've mentioned on Trade Talks in the past. Those will all get counted as plasma in the international trade statistics. Alice, Can you tell us a little bit about the the history of demand for these products? So the history of blood transfusions dates back to sort of the First and Second World Wars, when transfusions would be used on battlefields to help wounded soldiers. But plasma product demand is slightly more recent than that. It's sort of the 40s and 50s when we discovered manufacturing techniques to make these products into sort of more useful derivatives. But didn't it all go very wrong at one point? 
So one of the main products that they developed in the 40s and 50s were these clotting factors uh, in particular used for haemophiliac patients. And then in the 1980s, there was a huge scandal involving these products in which almost half of haemophiliacs worldwide contracted HIV, or AIDS or hepatitis through uh, contaminated blood products. And in particular, these were through one of the plasma components. So for a while, the industry was very cautious about using those products and developing products using human blood because it was considered unsafe or risky. But But then in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, they developed ways of cleaning these products chemically. So they're bathed in chemicals, they're also heat treated. And since then, there's basically been no transmission of HIV, AIDS or hepatitis via blood plasma products, which now means that pharmaceutical companies are much more confident that they're safe for use, regardless almost of of, of the source that they are are collected from. So that makes it, it easier for them to come up with new ways to start using plasma. And in particular, they've started using plasma products for cancer patients who have undergone chemotherapy because it helps to restore their immune systems. And that demand is, is growing more quickly than demand is for sort of other types of blood products. How big is trade in this stuff? The exact numbers are contested, but last year the UN trade data suggested that there was $150 billion worth of exports in plasma products. $150 billion? That sounds like a lot. It is a lot, and this is sort of why why the number is controversial. The plasma industry suggests that the actual value of, of plasma products worldwide is closer to sort of $20 billion. And there is a sort of a lot of intrigue around why the trade numbers appear so much bigger than what the industry thinks the value of, of these products is. There are a few reasons for this. The first is that trade numbers gross exports tend to be bigger than sort of the actual value added in products. If you look at the OECD data, Value added is about 60% of gross exports for most products. But at the same time, plasma is very heavily traded. So the idea there is that you might have the raw plasma going from A to B. Something is done to that plasma. It goes from B to C and it's not completely transformed. But that original flow gets double counted when something goes from B to C. Right. So because so much plasma is collected in one place and then shipped overseas to be manufactured elsewhere, the sort of double counting of plasma products does look quite high relative to what other industries double count. There's a lot of global trade in these plasma products, but there's relatively few source countries. Can you explain that? So almost all plasma comes from America. 80% of plasma was collected in the US and much of that is shipped overseas to Europe and other countries around the world. And that is because the US is one of very few countries that will compensate plasma donors. So in America, you can be paid about $35 a time to donate plasma. The process is a little longer than donating blood. It takes about an hour and companies who collect in America claim that they are compensating people for their time sort of commensurately. But most countries are reticent to do this. And that is because of the the sort of blood scandals that have plagued paid blood in the past. In particular, in the 1980s, when you did have all of these blood scandals with contaminated blood, people felt that compensation for blood meant that people were incentivized to sort of lie about risky behavior or suppress information about their sort of health so that they could still be paid to donate blood. But then that did mean that these sort of diseases were passed on to users of blood products. So a lot of countries still fear that paying people for blood is either unsafe or it's too politically unfavorable after that period of history to sort of openly support paying for blood. The US is one of the only countries where you can still do that. The others are sort of Germany and the Czech Republic. 
And you can also do it in China, but they had their own scandals. That means that people are still reluctant to donate blood there. What is the World Health Organization, the main international regulatory body in this area? What do they say about this? So they actually recommend that you don't compensate blood donors at all points across the supply chain. Their fear is that because there is still some demand for red blood cells for transfusion, and they are very difficult to sanitize. You can't heat treat them, you can't chemically bathe them. That would sort of ruin ruin the, the point of them. So because they still think that voluntary donations within the whole blood supply chain are key, they're nervous about paying donors for plasma because they think that if you're paid to donate plasma, that will crowd out voluntary donations within the whole blood sector. And this is a fear that's shared widely. It's a particular hot button issue in Canada at the moment where they actually have a sort of a parliamentary resolution about whether or not they should pay people for plasma and sort of trying to make this decision. However, there's a lot of evidence that this fear is unfounded. In particular, in Canada, you had sort of 30 ethicists and economists, including people like Alvin Roth, who signed a letter saying that you shouldn't worry about this crowding out effect. And that is from evidence all across the US where you have these plasma centres being set up and they haven't really crowded out the voluntary donation. And it's partly because they're seen as very different things. Plasma centres tend to be set up in sort of lower income areas where voluntary blood donation is, is less prevalent anyway. People still like to voluntarily donate blood. Their blood drives are still very successful in other areas of the country. You haven't seen any sort of interruption to that supply because these paid plasma donation centres have been set up. And collection in the US is extremely sort of plentiful. Like I said, it collects 85% of the world's supply and they haven't really seen any, any ill effects on their whole blood donation system. So I think those fears are, are possibly overblown. I don't think the, the research on this is definitive yet. I haven't seen a whole lot of randomized control trials, for example, to be able to pin this down. But mm-hmm. from the evidence that I have seen, it, it does suggest that. So there were studies, for example, in the Czech Republic when they rolled out their compensation scheme. And while it did seem like voluntary collections fell, the total supply of blood increased due to the you know increase of compensated donors. I think another big issue in this product space is if there is increasing demand from pharmaceutical companies and, and global health uh, concerns about getting access to plasma, it's unclear how you incentivize people to donate if you're not going to do it monetarily. We don't, I don't think, have other great methods of encouraging people to donate blood in other ways that don't involve financial compensation. Right. So no country in the world that doesn't pay plasma donors is self-sufficient in plasma products. The only country that comes close is Italy. And there you're given a full day off work if you donate blood or plasma products. So that actually is higher compensation in sort of real value than the sort of $35 a session that you get to do it in the US. So I do think it, it is difficult because the nature of plasma donation is quite different because you sort of have to sit for an hour hooked up to an apheresis machine which spins your blood, separates out the red blood cells and sort of puts them back into you. It is a much more involved, much longer process, which I think does require some, some form of compensation. And at the same time, you can give plasma much more frequently than you can give blood. So you can only give whole blood cells in the US. It's sort of once every eight weeks. Other countries say once every sort of three months or so. 
And that's because it does take your body a long time to replenish these red blood cells. So it's a, it's a difficult process, whereas plasma is almost entirely water and the sort of nutrients and other sort of factors that are included in plasma can replenish much more quickly. So actually in America, they say that you can give plasma twice a week. If you're asking someone to go and donate this fluid twice a week and it takes them an hour, an hour and a half each time, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that people would be able to do that for free. Do you think there are any ethical concerns that we should worry about that are more legitimate? I do think there are some ethical concerns in this market. In particular, a lot of people find it just uncomfortable in general that you're paying people to give their body part away. I would argue with plasma, it's sort of less difficult than than the arguments that people make for, say, markets and organs, which aren't replenishable. There's no evidence that donating plasma does any sort of long-term damage to your health. It does replenish very quickly, and so the sort of costs associated with donating plasma are very short term, but at the same time, it it, it is still uncomfortable, and I, I understand that people have those concerns. The other concern that is often talked about is sort of who is donating plasma. Here, one of my colleagues, Idris Kaloon at The Economist, did some analysis using census data in the US that showed that plasma centres are concentrated in low-income areas. So... Plasma centres are usually opened in districts where the poverty rate is 27.4%, whereas the sort of census median is 16.5. So there's plenty of evidence that they tend to be concentrated in these poorer areas. And it's worth noting that the sort of geographic location of the plasma centre is a very important part of how these things are regulated. You can't donate plasma to a centre unless you live in its exact geographic area. And that's for a very important reason, which is that they don't want... You don't want low-income people to be sort of plasma centre shopping, sort of going to lots of these centres in a row, trying to donate more plasma than it's safe for them to do so. And so you can only donate plasma in a centre that's close to you and they're sort of geographically spaced so that you wouldn't be able to give in two centres in any given week. And that is sort of for the protection of people who are, who are donating. Let's talk about trade in blood. So the pattern of trade seems to be north-north with rich countries selling to other rich countries. But can you tell us more about from where to where the trade flows and what's driving it? A lot of plasma is collected in the US, sort of 80% of the raw plasma supply comes from America. But a lot of that is collected by international companies. So the four biggest plasma collectors in the States are a Spanish, Irish, Australian and German company. And those four companies run eight out of 10 plasma collection centres in America. And once they've collected that plasma, a lot of it is, I mean, some of it is processed in the US into sort of supply chain products, but a lot of it is exported to Europe where it's manufactured into vaccines and these clotting factors and other sort of plasma derived products. And then it's sold worldwide. A lot of plasma products end up in China. China has an unusually high prevalence of liver disease. And so one in 13 people in, in China has some form of liver disease and a lot of those diseases are treated using plasma products. So a lot of that ends up in China, but it also goes sort of back to the US and, and all over the world because it's a sort of a complex supply chain. Relatively little plasma ends up in developing countries. Uh, this is partly because they collect very little. Most of the blood collected there is for transfusion rather than for advanced sort of plasma medications. But also these products are expensive. And so uh, as income rises, the intensity of use of plasma products also also tends to rise. So in many sort of developing countries, healthcare systems, uh, these products aren't yet a priority. But that is a future growth market. Yeah, so you tend to see usage of plasma products rise as countries get richer. We've spoken about how in some countries you're not allowed to pay people to donate plasma. But 
presumably the regulatory system within a country really matters too. You wouldn't want to import plasma products from somewhere that might you might think of as unsafe. You need to have a fairly high functioning regulatory system to be able to feel comfortable about importing plasma from somewhere. So to an extent, the US is kind of exporting its regulatory system as well as the actual physical plasma. Yeah, I definitely agree that that is the case. These are a sort of advanced pharmaceutical products. And in order to feel safe that the sterilization processes that have gone on are sort of securing these products, I think it is it is to the it does give developed countries with strong pharmaceutical regulatory systems an advantage. The other thing is that in developing countries, they have tended to find it harder to collect these blood products. In particular, there's an example in China. Uh, there was an awful scandal in the early 90s where they didn't properly sanitize the equipment that they were using to collect plasma donations. And that ended up transmitting HIV and AIDS and hepatitis to donors. So now in China, it is extremely difficult for them to be self-sufficient in blood donations full stop, let alone this additional plasma product. So they tend to be a very heavy importer of plasma products. But it also sounds like it's, it's more than just the United States' regulatory environment. From what you said, it's these European companies that they themselves are essentially setting up their subsidiaries in the United States to be able to draw the plasma themselves. So they've sort of internalized a bit of the regulatory function even within their own companies. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, so I think they've internalized the sort of supply benefits that come from being able to pay people to donate this stuff. If, say, Shire of Ireland tried to collect as much plasma as it needs to produce all of the pharmaceutical products that it does in Ireland, it would struggle partly because Ireland is a much smaller country and partly because you you just wouldn't get enough donors in for it to manufacture all of of those products. But the sort of pharmaceutical regulations in in Europe are also a very high standard. So I think that's that's sort of one of the reasons why they therefore feel as comfortable manufacturing these these derivative products, these complex products across Europe. They feel as comfortable doing that in, in Europe as they do in the U.S. But the supply chains we're talking about, they're European companies setting up shop in the U.S. and sending the blood to Europe. So they know how to meet all the regulations. Why can't they set up supply centers outside the U.S. or Europe? Theoretically, it would be possible to set up these plasma centers in much lower income countries and pay people a lot less than you're paying people in the US to donate this stuff. I think the issues you'd come up against on that run sort of more into the the ethical problems that people would have with that concept. And also the fact that a, a lot of sort of there's still a lot of stigma around paying people for, for to donate their blood, and that seems to be seems to be less if you're doing it in sort of less 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 of an egregious way than than that would be. I guess the other thing is that a lot of the, these plasma companies, what, what they say, a benefit of doing plasma donations the way that they do is that it means that the first time you go, you are screened for all of these diseases. And you can then become a repeat donor. So actually, the first plasma donation that you ever give, even though you're compensated for it, will never actually be used. All of that plasma is incinerated after being tested. And if you do come back positive for any of these diseases, it means that you then are banned from donating in the future, even though, in theory, the plasma would still be safe. So I guess it's it's a two-stage system. The first stage is you screen out everyone with these diseases because then the quality of your plasma going forward is very high. But then you heat treat and chemical treat, but that's almost a safety step. That's almost, there is no way that any bad plasma is getting through this system because there are two stages of keeping it safe. Are there any technological advances that meant that trade in blood became easier? Yes, there are. So when you used to give blood donations, 
when blood was used just for transfusion, you donate whole blood and it would be stored in its whole blood components. And that meant that blood was only fresh for 30 days. But since they've started using these apheresis machines, which sort of spin out and separate red blood cells from plasma from clotting factors, it means that you can store the components separately and they stay fresh for a lot longer. And what that also meant for plasma is that then you could sort of flash freeze plasma. And once you've frozen it, it means that that blood component is safe for use for two to three years. And so that makes it a lot easier to trade over borders than whole blood, which is only safe for 30 days after donation, and clotting factors, which are only good for sort of five days or so. There are other reasons why people are sort of averse to trading whole blood, but it's partly that it's just much easier to trade plasma. Is it even legal to trade whole blood? No, for the most part. Trading red blood cells, because of the sort of blood contamination scandals of the past, countries are very firm about sort of securing their own whole blood supplies and, and just using blood, red blood cells that have been donated domestically. The one exception is for very rare types of blood. So if you have extremely sort of one in one of the thousand, one in six thousand blood type, that means that you basically can't take blood from anyone, then you can trade red blood cells over borders. And there are a couple of centres in Europe, one in in, one in the UK and one in France where they store these extremely rare blood, whole blood cells. But even then, you can't compensate those donors. So you have stories of people who live all across Europe paying for their own taxis to go from France to Switzerland so that they can donate blood for in an emergency situation. And there's, there's no recourse for those people to be compensated for their time. But that is a sort of whole other supply chain. Alice, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Alice Fullwood, the Wall Street correspondent at The Economist, for explaining to us all things trade in blood and plasma. And we'll be sure to tweet out Alice's piece in The Economist about blood trade. Thanks also to Idris Kaloun, my colleague at The Economist, for putting together some of the data. He covers policy for us here in D.C. I'd also like to thank David Van Ness at Penn State University and Tom Boyke at the Council on Foreign Relations for talking us through some of the underlying economics of the plasma market. And we'll tweet out some other interesting research we found this week as well. Thanks also to Colin Warren for taking care of our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Alice, do you have do you have a two underscores thing? Well, where blood's concerned, you need both a donor and a recipient. So two is better than one. That's that's horrendous. <laughs> Even worse than mine. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs>